0: Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins. I'm here with my Rocks Back Pages colleagues, Mark Pringle. Uh, hi, Barney. And Jasper Morrison Bowie. Hello, Barney. Well, that was a very <laughs> somber hello. I They're know. Getting I'm, more and
1: more somber. Uh, I know. I, it's, it's, it's. He just doesn't want to become a cliche of himself. <laughs> <but> that's <laughs> his real fear. It, it's ennui um, and existential angst. I think that's creepy. Oh, well, through. that's okay. <laughs> no, that's
0: fine. That's absolutely fine. <laughs> As I say, welcome to the RBP podcast. We are today going to be talking a little later about Orange Juice and Edwin Collins and postcard records. We're going to be talking about Danny Goldberg, former manager of Nirvana, who at one time was a rock critic and has just published a book about Kurt Cobain called Serving the Servant. But first... We're going to be talking about Todd Rundgren, who's just been playing in London.
1: This week's audio interview is... It is, indeed. It's Bill Domain in December '97 on the phone to Todd. We'll play a clip straight away. Uh, this is Todd talking about this new thing called the internet.
2: This new idea of delivering... Online enables me to go back to a time when people wrote and recorded songs more or less all the time rather than in specific uh, uh, ch- chunks or time periods that related to the marketing of music. Mm-hmm. In other words, once the, the LP and then the CD became the standard form factor, musicians spent less time creating new music and more time promoting old music because you know your product cycles are two or three years apart and if you've had any success you know you're heavily invested in that you spend three six months sometimes longer writing and recording an album that you'll ne- then spend the next two years performing yeah and promoting and so your periods of musical creativity become spaced further and further out in some ways success success works against you And that people like what you're doing, so they want to hear you do it to death. (laughs) (laughs) They're less interested in new stuff. They're interested in stuff you've done already.
1: Todd, as we all know, was very, very up on all technologies, very early adopter of video and things like that. And this is 97, so it's pretty early days for the internet. He already saw that it was going to have a huge impact. Of course, he doesn't know how it's going to work out. But after that clip, he talks about the two-year cycle of making an album where you'd re- spend, let's say, three or four months recording an album and then you tour it to death. And he said that he found that problematical as an artist and he said he thinks a lot of bands found it difficult. He also then says how CDs have made it even worse because suddenly people expect at least 60 minutes of music on a CD. Yeah. And so as a songwriter you had to produce so much more work and he sees this possibility that by working online, is you can basically do songs as individual events and put them out.
3: And he was totally right, because you can also circumvent the whole publicisation cycle that goes with releasing an album. And we're seeing more and more people just making a splash by releasing it straight away. You don't have to do all the build-up publicity. Absolutely. And all of that sort of thing. He's really... He's really up on it uh, at that stage, I'm, which is pretty remarkable for uh, 1997. In
1: 1997, there was no social media as such, but he almost sort of anticipates it in the way he describes that music can be recorded and released. So, you no, know, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, you're a big Todd fan, aren't you, Barney? He's my
0: main man, or he's one of my main <laughs> men. He really is. And as it happens, I interviewed him in that year as well, and I went to San Francisco where he was living at that point. And he was really embedded in... The Silicon Valley as it was as it was. Didn't he also invent the first graphics tablet? I think you may be right. I mean, he uh, was... I mean, I was
3: just reading his Wikipedia page when it <laughs> came on air. So, but I thought that was funny. He's, not, he, I mean, that's in 1980, so he's very much. Oh, I mean, been.
0: I think in many ways one of the great sort of pitfalls. He's always been ahead of the curve, and he's never really been able to take advantage of the mm-hmm. curve. He's such a pioneer in so many ways. I mean, and, and I can remember when I visited him in San Francisco, he had everything on a laptop, and he did a couple of shows and. All of the kind of backing tracks were were on this laptop that just sort of sat on top of an amplifier. And, of course, (laughs) inevitably it malfunctioned. (laughs) And, you know, talk about being too too far ahead of the curve. You know, he was experimenting with kind of synths and electronica way before most people. So you go back to the early 70s. Um, And he's doing this kind of really interesting kind of hybrid of American singer-songwriter melodicism, but with a lot of... electronic stuff going on around
1: it. Uh, I mean, we forget that, you know, we always regard him as an artist, but he was as much an engineer and a a producer as an artist. And so the technology of making records was something that always interested him. I mean, he was very involved in building the Bearsville studio and things like that. One thing about this interview is, I mean, it was the interview... Bill Domain writes for The American Songwriter, and the title gives it away. It's basically essentially meant to be about Todd as a songwriter. And he talks about the whole process. We'll have a clip later when he talks about plagiarism and originality. Yeah. How he's gone... He says most writers, they go from writing the personal stuff. Once they've run out of that, they start writing about generalisations. So oh. he does talk about the process of writing songs and what he regards as a songwriter's job. Mm. I mean, it's curious, because 97, his career, it's sort of... Mm... Well, I mean, he'd
0: been out in the commercial wilderness for quite a few years really at that point and I think the album that came out that year was called With a Twist, and it was a kind of,
1: you know, boss on over, That's right.
0: revisiting of of some oh. of his greatest
1: he, songs. He, he tw- In fact, the interview hung around that, that yeah. and Bill keeps asking him... Do that you specific song. Do you remember writing yeah. that song? And he says, yeah. well, not really. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I, I, the thing I was charmed by at the end of how he talks about how big an influence Yes were on Utopia. Yeah. <laughs> I,
0: I can remember. I did a very big... I mean, what came out of that interview in 1997 the one I did was the longest piece that Mojo ever ran it was about 12,500 words right. and I and I interviewed sort of everyone and I remember B.B. Buell who, yeah, was yeah. His, who was his great consort yeah. his, his girlfriend through the 70s
1: and then briefly so, Elvis Costello's consort yeah.
0: See, I remember her says, it was stuck in my mind that they'd wake up in their Greenwich Village house every morning and Todd would put on fucking f- roundabout by yes again <laughs> not <laughs> roundabout again <laughs> so, he was, um, uh, so he was really influenced by uh, yeah. by Yes, and you can kind of hear that in the slightly later albums. Yeah, Annie, I, I mean,
1: uh, I, I, I was always I, was, I was fond of Todd. Hated Utopia. With
0: Utopia a, was nah. his prog band, really yeah, it was a totally. prog rock group. I yeah. listening to this audio was fascinating for me because I mean, I really am a sort of died-in-the-wool Todd is goddess, and he yeah. has probably written thirty <laughs> of my like favorite two hundred songs. And so to hear him talk about songwriting, I, I found really interesting. Yeah. I mean, he's extraordinarily articulate yeah. and bright guy. Probably one of the five most intelligent. You know, rock musicians I've uh, I've ever absolutely.
1: met. I mean, it is interesting that when you read interviews with people who've worked with Todd, that he could be a real struggle to work with. He was huh. quite. Dog- he's very dogmatic about processes and ways sure. of doing things. Uh, you know, he wasn't a sort of laid back. Let's kind of like set up some amps and sting up some microphones, sort of guy. He was really fanatical about the process and. You know, whilst some really enjoyed the experience, there are others who are less than sort of thrilled about
0: it. He was never see. really that interested in other people's music. <laughs> I mean, the number of <laughs> people I'd spoke to would be like, you know, pouring their heart and soul into, the, into this <laughs> song. And they'd look up, and Todd would have his feet up on <laughs> the mixing the, the desk, mixing desk <laughs> reading a magazine. Like about (laughs) studio engineering or something. (laughs) Uh, And they'd go, Well, well, was that all right, Todd? And he'd sort of go, Yeah, yeah, it's fine, fine. (laughs) Next, next. He really was just taking the money. Well, but I didn't know until
3: probably about half an hour ago that he produced Meatloaf's Bad Out of Hell. Yeah.
0: Well, that was his biggest commercial
3: success Yeah, I mean, my
1: producer, ever. you'd say, with inverted commas, because sure. actually Jim Steinman really produced yeah, it. Sure. Uh, well, the, he, the,
0: yeah, I mean, he wrote and arranged yeah, it, but yeah. Todd did really, was the producer of Yes, it, but with, working with
1: Steinman. With Steinman there, yeah. I mean, you know, Todd's role as a producer had been very restricted. But this is one
0: of the more bizarre stories. I mean, I don't think anyone thought that this was going to amount to anything. They couldn't even get a deal for that album. I mean, how the hell is this... Very overweight guy singing cod springsteen <laughs> mel- melodramatic <laughs> rock song. How is this going to Parlay into well, and then the, multi-million sales, and, and then the,
1: then the sad story about how that fat guy got absolutely nothing from it. That that diamond had yeah. it so oh, really? stitched up. I had no the, idea. The, yeah, the the the, the, the Mr. But, Loaf, Mr. Loaf, <laughs> barely saw, <laughs> appropriately named Loaf, barely saw any royal. Oh, ah, had no at idea at all. No, it's it's a famous content- bone of oh. contention. Meatloaf should have been a rich man. Yeah. on the back of that and he never was
0: but of course there are people who say that Todd should have been a rich man I mean I remember B.B. Buell saying you know Todd just misses out on everything everyone steals from him Prince stole from him Prince was a huge fan etc and and here is, I mean they long split up at this point sure. but she bemoaning the fact that he didn't he just didn't kind of reap what he sowed and, yeah. and deserved to and I saw him play in London last Saturday and it kind of reminded me really of, of why Todd is sort of held up in the same estimation as, I don't know, you know, anyone you could mention, I think he could have been one of the great stars, but he never took any counsel from anyone he never, really, he needed after he parted ways with Albert Grossman who, you know, was was Dylan's manager Mm -hmm. and Janis Joplin's manager Albert, I think, did the best job he could for him, but Todd just never really listened to any advice, and I found myself watching him at Hammersmith on Saturday night, just thinking, Todd, there's so many things wrong with this show, with what you're wearing, (laughs) with what you're doing. And it just, it just, I sort of, I was loving the songs that he was singing but I was also cringing and you know I needed an editorial voice maybe. you just I just want to take him aside and what, say Todd you still, know this is really I think this is what you should be doing what, and he just doesn't care enough, was, was, he still,
1: was he still playing the Gibson SG the painted Gibson SG no that Eric Clapton the fool It <laughs> was yes. painted by the fool yep, yep.
0: No, I'm not sure that he still has that knowing Todd he's probably had to sell that because <laughs> he's just kind of hopeless with money I mean you mentioned the graphics tablet he was a real pioneer of music videos. So when he made all that money out of Out of Hell, he ploughed it into this video studio in Bearsville near Woodstock and just sort of squandered hundreds of thousands of dollars oh. doing these, these what looked like very kind of primitive little commutes. I mean, I think he's one of his... Videos was like the first or second to be played on MTV. No when it way! Yeah. But I think in the long term, people will reevaluate Todd as one of the more original and brilliant mm. figures in the seventies.
1: I mean, I first became aware of him before I became aware of him as a kid. The Nas's. Yes. Singles were okay. decent sized great. You know, they were right. played. They were played on English pop uh-huh. radio. You know, and I thought they were fantastic. Open my eyes
0: is fantastic. Yeah, you know,
1: I, you know, I, th- I thought the Naz were a really de- decent. There decent was a classic band.
0: moment on Saturday when the, I think the second song they played was Open My Eyes. It was a sort of journey through his through career. his kind of yeah. back catalogue, and his guitar strap immediately broke. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and, and it just it just sort guitar. of some, you know, and and it, and it took about literally two minutes for some guys to run on and take the guitar for another three minutes for him to fix this guitar strap oh, and you could just say. see todd kind of losing his patience and he's sort of says, that's the first time i've ever had to play air guitar on open my eyes <laughs> and he says, well you know maybe you should em- employ some slightly yeah. more together people anyway so the great todd wrong yep. we'll, we'll hear another clip uh, later yep To turn our attention briefly to what is free on the homepage for the coming seven days, the feature is all about orange juice and postcard records. Edwin Collins has a new album out. Edwin was the, the front man, the main man in, in Orange Juice. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether, Mark, you ha- ever had any strong feelings about I, Orange Juice?
1: I, I, I mean, I like them enough. I, I, like, I really like Rip It Up as a single. They're, yes. Their first, their first real hit. He's a baritone singer. I, I don't generally love baritone singers. It is a slight sort of, you know... And a
0: very mannered singer. A, a very, very
1: <laughs> but, 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 I mean, I like them, but I think in a way they were pointing in a direction of a certain sort of English pop, which actually proved to be fairly ghastly I mean when I think of bands like Haircut 100 they are sort of like orange juice light you know um, yes and all with their guitars high up on their the sort chests. of twee, <laughs> school. <laughs> the, the <laughs> twee school the twee school the twee school and, and there's an element of that postcard records as a label I think is pretty interesting there was a it was one of two labels in Scotland at that time and it was a time of great regionalism in English music yes the match to the scene there was a lot of stuff going happening in Liverpool with Echo and the Bunnymen and so on and so forth and this was very much the Glasgow slash Edinburgh scene yeah I thought that was really good for English music I think regionalism yeah. is good for music across the board whether it's in America or, or where, whatever yeah and one of the problems with the internet is it's sort of eroded regionalism or-
3: well you get you get a different kind of factionalism in its place yeah, sure. right like you get pockets of communities that are digital regions, if you will. Okay, I do take your point. Yeah. I think as far as pop music goes, yeah. it's sort of gone a bit, but as far as the rest of the niche that you can... Ex- Niches,
1: niches
0: that you can explore. <laughs> niches
1: that you can explore. They, they were on postcard. But... <laughs> the niches, yeah. <laughs> they had the guitars up by the chins. The um, I think that what regionalism gave music, whether it's southern soul, Memphis, Muscle Shoals, and so on and so forth, was distinct sounds based around usually a handful of recording studios, a handful of labels. That is labels. a very good point. Uh, uh, and that that is pretty much, yeah. to, I'd say has I mean, p- gone partly
3: because there are fewer recording studios yeah, as well, well, and everyone's
1: doing everything in their bedroom. I mean, in hip hop, there was the sort of the Atlanta sound. Which which, you know, that happens. There is a sort of New Orleans sound yep. and so on. You know, the, these things, are, like Postcard, are about communities of people. Communities, mm. I think, is a big one, and gigs as well, and mm. venues yeah. as well as, as mm. that. Yeah.
3: Mm. What,
0: what did you think of? It's a time I remember very fondly, funny enough, but because I was just starting to write in the music press, I really associate that time with all these indie labels yep. and these scenes. And there yep. was something actually rather endearing and charming and magical about it, and every week on the enemy the single of the week would be you know yes some twee band from from glasgow wherever yes and, and actually there were a lot of really classic yeah. little yeah. singles uh, uh, put, uh, put uh, out in that time you've got
1: a very short period of time let's say if the Buzzcocks did spiral scratch in 76 kind of where it started which is really. the yeah. the kind of first yeah. diy indie single so within five years the music industry has been sort of broken wide open whether it's in London with rough trade, whether, yeah. it's, it's, whether it's postcard, uh, whether it's factory and, and so on and so forth. Mm. And that sort of spirited independence, getting away from the majors, was critical. And there is a point shortly towards the end of Orange Juice's career, when it's all starting to fall to pieces, yeah. is that the majors are starting to buy up the Indies and turn them basically into a departments for themselves. Mm. And actually the, the spirit which made all of this possible is... is Seeping away, and, mm. and the very notion of indie, the, the term becomes corrupted. Yeah. It's no longer indie labels; it becomes a style of music, which is what we have today. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean,
0: the, so the first of the three pieces for the feature mm-hmm. is actually is a great little piece from September 1980. Paul Morley, who was the real <laughs> champion, a lot of the, of a lot of this stuff, interviewing. Not only Edwin, but Alan Horne, the the boss of Postcard, the founder of Postcard Records. They come down to London trying to get a deal. They're they're sort of uh, uh, harassing John Peel, trying to get him to play the first Postcard single. And not getting a lot of joy out of of Peely. So it's it's a lovely little snapshot of these two chances.
3: I had a quick look at the piece and they're very sort of fervent in their aspirations to make it big with this indie label. Yes. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, Edwin sort of says, I said something like, I'm kind of tired of this antagonism between the indie sensibility and commercial pop. Yeah, yeah. And, and in a way, that presages everything that happens. Yeah. I mean, they're moving out of this kind of skinny velvet mm-hmm. underground sound of yeah. a lot of indie bands at that time. And the Velvets were the sort of, oh. the benchmark. Everybody kind of yes. wanted to be a version of the Velvet mm-hmm. Underground. Though,
1: which, which Velvets... Varied. Some wanted to be the Sister Ray velvet. Sure. And some wanted to be the th- the third album, the Pretty yes. Songs velvet. Yes. And I'd say Orange Juice very much in the pretty, the third album, Pretty Songs sort of bracket.
0: And also a lot of a lot of humour yeah. Orange Juice had. I mean, charm yeah. and humour. Well, last week we were talking about Joy Division, obviously, and and this they they're sort of like the opposite of yes. Joy Division. There's an archness, there's, there's a, a humour, there's, there's a charm there. But probably at the end of the day. Slightly insubstantial. I love Blue Boy. I'm fond of Simply Thrilled Honey. Yeah, I, I, they have a great charm as yeah. singers. Um, no, no, I don't no, know
1: that. Of course, Edwin had this catastrophic medical crisis. He had a stroke, and he had a, and a, stroke. a
0: massive stroke, and, and the, yeah. how,
1: what, about five years ago, Oh, longer, probably longer, longer than now longer. than that. This is about ten years ago, uh, uh, and he's had a. Very slow and very tricky recovery, mm. but he's he's just made a new record and yeah. and the, the act of actually playing music he had to sort of reinvent for himself, mm. I believe. Yes. I, mean, I, I could be wrong about that. But well, he's had a lot of help from his wife,
0: yes. Grace, who's been just kind of massively important mm. in, in his life. Yeah. They've now moved all the way to almost the sort of the end of Scotland. <laughs> I mean they're about as <laughs> far north as you can yeah. go. I just think he's a delightful Guy actually, and in that interview with Morley, and also the interview that we feature with Len Brown yep. um, around Edwin's first solo album after Orange Juice broke up. So that's 1989. He's just really an interesting
1: yeah. and amusing we, man we with, talk, with
0: real great reference points. We, we
1: talked a little while back about another Paul Morley interview, but much much later, and um, mm. just before the band, in fact, just when, band about when the band was breakup, breaking up. Yeah, he's kind of miserable
3: because the band is breaking up, and he's he's replaced the lineup several times, Twice, kind three of times yeah. and that was the first time I'd heard of Orange Juice I and mean, right. I went and listened to them and watched one of their music videos and what actually struck me most of all was that they looked like they could have been a band that are around now yeah. one of those hopeless pop revival <laughs> sort of 80s revival pop bands like the 1975 yes. kind of thing it was funny because they really... The hairstyles, the yep. look, everything. It, it could have been a music video from yesterday.
1: Oh Though th- th- Even at that time, it was reactionary. Like, it, you know, there's an element of Teddy Boy in some of the sort yeah, of, the, absolutely. of the stuff, you know. But anyway, you know, I think we like Edwin Collins, whether or not we are passionate about his music. Sure, I think he, that's right. Yeah. He's,
0: he is a thoroughly decent human being. I mean, in front of the, the postcard band I liked most of all was, was Joseph Kay. I thought had a kind of yeah. emotion and an yeah. edge... A bit tougher. A, bit, a little bit darker. One forgets that the go-betweens were originally on Postcard were as well. They? Yeah, yeah That I didn't, but, know. That but, I didn't but, know. Before really one any of us had or heard of them. or one, never, them, knew or one never knew. one never knew. Postcard really, I mean, it could have been a kind of great label. I think Alan Horn was one of those sort of sub-Malcolm McLaren types. Yes, You know, Alan McGee types. Of course, Alan McGee, the other Scotsman yes. who really did, yep. who, who who started a little Indie label that became... Hugh- a huge yes, thing. Creation. Yeah. So Postcard, I suppose, could have been creation if Alan Horn had been a little, I don't know, a little more savvy. The last piece is Pete Perfides' review of a great book that Simon Goddard wrote about Postcard called Simply Thrilled. Right. Which is terrific. There is actually um,
1: also, I believe it's probably still on iPlayer somewhere, there's a very good documentary oh. made by BBC Scotland about the, the Scottish indie scene, yeah. which talks very much about this. The so, Sound
0: of Young Scotland. Yeah. Moving on to the week's featured writer, Danny Goldberg. Now, Danny started life as a writer on Billboard Circus right. and publications yeah. and then became a publicist and he ended up becoming the vice president of Swan Song Records, Led Zeppelin's label. Yeah. Um, so he sort of got his foot in the door in the industry and became quite a bigwig. I mean, he ended up being the, I mean, the head of like, Warner Brothers at one point and I've interviewed Danny a couple of times and like him very much. He's written a number of books now, and and as I said earlier, he's just published a book about his most famous client, Kurt Cobain. Uh, the picture of the assert. two of them on, on the homepage is very funny. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Yeah, Danny was one half of Gold Mountain Entertainment in LA, and Nirvana became their biggest client. They also managed Bonnie Raitt and others, oh, but right, right. Nirvana they took on, and I think Danny played a pretty big part in turning this this you know grunge band from Washington State into the biggest band in the world. Yeah. So we've, we've chosen three pieces from 1971. There's a quite a long piece about Alice Cooper, so it's pre-schools out. It's,
1: it's pretty early. It's it's not the earliest. In fact, I will talk yeah. later on about the, possibly the earliest. The earliest of Alice Cooper. Of Alice Cooper. Yeah. But Circus in 71 was still a really good magazine. It stultified into a sort of a, oh. a mag aimed at the Midwest, quaalude, swallowing... The you know, hard rock sort of market. Yeah, but it came
0: free with, with uh, Qualley. It came free with <laughs> Qualley. taped
1: onto the back uh, I mean, cover. Uh, but, but in 71, it, only a couple of years before, morphed out of Hullabaloo and was a tremendous scrappy magazine with some very, very good writers on. I mean, it, it continued to have very good writers. Unfortunately, the very good writers had to write to a sort of uh, an editorial yes. standpoint, which was... Inherently limited. Mm. And Danny was one of the very good scrappy writers on that magazine. Mm. Well,
0: I mean, he's interesting on Alice Cooper, and Cooper talks in the interview about something that's very relevant right now. He talks about being male and female. And, of course, they were these shock rockers. His name was Alice Cooper. He wore a dress. They did all kinds of outrageous things on stage. But it's an interesting piece of kind of early transgression yeah, yeah, rock, I mean it yeah. was signed and produced by Frank Zappa, yeah. and then there's an account from Circus of the beginning of Led Zeppelin's 1975 tour it starts very inauspiciously with Jimmy breaking his finger just before yep. flying to Chicago they all arrive in Chicago and they're all wearing, I mean Robert Plant's wearing a sort of frilly shirt <laughs> uh, completely <laughs> un, <laughs> unprepared apparently Gosh. for Chicago weather in January <laughs> <laughs> um, Sounds cool. and then just a lot of Danny's pieces, a really interesting piece. I had no idea when I met Danny, whenever it was, that he'd actually been at school with the late, great Gil Scott yeah. <laughs> Um and, and I think, so I think essentially it was a school up in like Riverdale. Um, Sorry, where's Riverdale? Riverdale, New York. So it's sort of north of the Bronx, I think I'm right in saying. Mm -hmm. And Danny went to this school, and it was essentially... I mean, pretty much everyone there was Jewish, but there were, like, five scholarship places. And Gil Scott Heron was one of the scholarship Ah, guys. And so it's a, a remarkable kind of account of being at school with Gil Scott Heron. And he talks about how they were assigned homework to write something about their childhoods. And... They all did their, their rather predictable kind of accounts of what it was like growing up in suburban New York, <laughs> yeah. and then and then apparently Gil took the floor and talked for sort of half an hour about growing up in Tennessee before moving wow. to the East Coast. And he and Danny says it was it was so brilliant, you instantly knew this guy was going to be a great writer. There's no way you were ever going to be able to compare with him.
1: So, Fascinating,
0: yeah, really interesting. So so that's the free stuff on RBP. And at this point, of course. We turn our attention to what ain't free. <laughs> what ain't
1: free. Right, starting off in disc 1963, June Harris interviewing Jerry Marsden, and the Jerry out of Jerry and the Pacemakers, and it's basically all about how he likes his women and how he, he gets to pull another one, of the, another one of these 60s pieces about <laughs>
3: yeah. women,
1: yeah. blokes and, and women. women. Yeah, yeah. I mean, first, first of all, he calls them Judies, which is a very scarce oh. expression. I've had I had heard the expression my first time, but it has rather sort of gone out of kind of common use. Sort of the scouse version. Of the Australian Sheen.
0: Exactly. Yeah, exactly.
1: I mean, I know I'm not good looking. I'm not very tall, about five foot seven, but I get along with the Judas just fine. Mm. I bet you do, Jerry. The one thing that success has taught I should really be doing this in a Scouse accent, but I can't do Go Scouse. On, right. No, I'm not going right, to try. Right. Can you do them? <laughs> the one thing that success has taught me. Well, the one thing that no. success has taught Oh, just drop <laughs> you two the one thing success has taught me is how to dress. All the sloppy clothes are out, and no girl really likes to be seen with a boy who's untidy, you know. This is the guy who sang You'll Never Walk Alone, isn't yes, it? Yes, right. How the Great do, Scouse Hymn. Really, yeah. It is the Great Scouse Hymn. Moving on to what we've just been talking about. This is the wonderful John Mendelsohn, who we had as a guest a a couple of months back on this podcast, writing of his student paper, the UCLA Daily Bruin, about a bizarre records night at the Shrine Auditorium, um, featuring headlining the Mothers of Invention, and support acts Alice Cooper and Wildman Fisher. Well, Wildman Fisher's a fairly interesting character. He did one album, was it, or two albums for Bizarre... An
0: Evening with Wildman Fisher.
1: Uh, which was a kind of record which a lot of my friends had for some reason, but yeah. never really listened Freaks to. Freaks had it. Freaks it had it. It unlistenable. Well, it's good for rolling joints on, but not much else, you know. But, <laughs> but, but, but the, for me, the fascinating thing is that this is certainly, in terms of uh, the Rock's Back Pages Library, the very, very earliest mention of Alice Cooper. That's pretty cool. Um, and, and John writes, Alice Cooper, a group consisting of five girls or five very long-haired guys or some combination of the two, totalling five, followed Mr Wildman... They are, after the crazy world of Arthur Brown, the second most visually freaky group in captivity. <laughs> uh, um, it, it's, a, it's another splendid John Mendelssohn review. I mean, oh, yeah. uh, I can read him all day, even though I disagree with virtually every single assertion he'll make <laughs> about anything. It's really good. He's very, he's very good on Wild Man Fisher, who apparently was a UCLA graduate, or at least a student really? at UCLA. And genuinely barking mad. And genuinely barking okay. mad. So that's a classic from 15th of January 1969. Right. The, the show actually happened in December sixty eight i uh, one thing he hasn't the GTOs are on that bill, and he doesn't give them a mention. I suspect because he came arrived too late to see <laughs> them or so, something like that. Which is a shame because it'd been great to have a live review of the GTOs. Sure, they sure. also on a Zappa. They, were, the they absolute, were on
0: Bizarre or Straight. All
1: of these people were effectively yeah. Zappa alumni. You know. Distributed
0: by Warner Brothers. The, the two labels, of course, Zappa being Zappa. The freakier groups came out on the Straight label, <laughs> and the slightly less freaky
1: <laughs> <laughs> groups came out and on the Bizarre, bizarre label. <laughs> Alice Cooper. Made no real ripples at that time, and I had to transfer, first of to Detroit and then to New York to make it again a, a, a couple of years later. I mean, we talked about 1971, yeah. the piece you were just talking about, and that's exactly that. Moving on to 73, a really interesting uh, Lorraine Altman interview with Yoko Ono. We forget that Yoko was still hated by it millions of people as a woman who broke up the Beatles mm. and all sort of stuff. She had released maybe two, maybe three solo albums at this point. And she's very, she says, John was a male chauvinist when I met him. And I think he was rather surprised. I'm sure there was a period when John might have felt threatened by what I do, but I don't think he feels it now. This is pretty interesting. You know, this is a genuine relationship, which, despite its rocky moments, was incredibly important to both of them. Mm. She talks a lot about sort of feminism and sort of how that is defined. She says, I don't think it's the answer to our problems to become the master race and turn men into slavery. That's a drag. But she, she, but she does... Drag. That's a drag. <laughs> it's a drag, man. Um, and she says also, going back to what I was saying earlier, she says, I think there's a definite, almost determined hatred towards me in the business. There's all these sorts of snide remarks. Mm. But I think that's still the case, in yes. a way. I mean, well, yeah. she's kind of, I think, well, being, becoming the widow. Yeah. Actually... Elevated her away from that. And, sure. You know, curiously. Yeah. It, it but, people, the, but,
3: but people still don't like, people still kind of don't like what she don't does. Like what, don't know like what she does, but there's a sort of sneering thing about it. Oh, she's kind of just a bit <clears throat> nuts or whatever. I, don't uh, know. I,
1: I think that was certainly the case in the past. I, I think that the moment she became the widow, that actually a lot of people who disliked her started treating her with a curious kind of was too much reverence mm. in, in hmm. some ways. Almost, yes. Almost went too too far away. But again, I mean, isn't
3: that again just a case of not treating her for
1: herself, but treating her well, for our relationship with... That's a, that's a, very, good, that's a very good, good point, movie. indeed. I, I mean, I actually kind of... Her artwork, she was part of the Fluxus group, a yeah. very, very interesting group. I think she was a serious artist, so she made some excruciatingly awful films. You know, we've got to... <laughs> that's not. Kind of, but, but her records, the the stuff I liked was the very early stuff, when she's absolutely wild, catawalling... Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, I, the, the more she straightened out as a musician, the less interesting... She was to
0: me. I'll always forgive her everything for Walking on Thin Ice, that extraordinary record that came out after Lennon's death. Right. And also I think there's really good stuff on Approximately Infinite Universe is yes. an amazing uh, I, record. I, I, I think so. As footnotes, it's, it's worth mentioning here that two of our writers played quite a big parts in the John and Yoko story. So Miles, yes. you know, Barry Miles, it was at, in- his, he, it was at his indica bookshop yep. in London that they that they first met when she was exhibiting in London and this is written by Lorraine Altomare of course who is really one of our most important writers yes. I would say she was writing for the Detroit Free Press, Free press in the mid 60s yeah, covering soldiers.
1: A yes. sort of teen writer, but with
0: a real slant on, on yes. rock and roll music. And... and she got quite close to some of these people, including John Yoko. Yeah. And just little known facts of the day that she married the great actor Peter Boyle. Yes. And John and Yoko were there, and John Lennon was Peter's best man wow. at their wedding. Wow. Huh. And um, that's great. A I actually met her at this day. huge apartment uh-uh. she's got on the Upper East Side, <laughs> overlooking the East River. And John and Yoko had been in that apartment. Yeah. Uh, P- Peter Boyle, I think, had died in that apartment. But, but, and it was so you've got a sense yeah, that yeah. this woman was really very yeah. well
1: connected. Um, I have a huge amount of time for her. I mean, she's, as I said, she starts off as a very young teen writer for the Detroit yes. Free Press. Yes, I mean, she's, really she herself is like seventeen or eighteen. She's writing this column, and it, it is a fanish type column. But even then. She She's getting some interesting barbs about stuff. or anything. She's one of the very few women who wrote about pop who then translated into being a woman who wrote seriously about rock, in inverted commas. Yes. You know. uh, Penny Valentine did that in this country. Lorraine Altman did that in America. Not many others managed to do that. It was, it was, for men, it was a thing you could... Well, it's possible. Sure. Mm. It was very, very hard for women yeah. to make that transition.
0: I think she was, um, when Rolling Stone set up their first office in new york before they moved yes. to new york i think i'm right in saying that that young when put her in yes, charge of that, that that's with correct with yep. chris hodenfield yep. i think yep. so that was the new york yep. office
1: moving on to 79 joy division <laughs> uh, in case you hadn't got enough last <laughs> week <laughs> yeah, no, 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 <laughs> last week well in fact the, a lot of what i'm talking about is a weird echo of last week but uh, talking about this dave mcculloch who, if this anyone out there, piece, if, if anyone out there knows of Dave McCullough or his family's whereabouts, get in touch with us. He via... appears to
0: have disappeared without trace. We can't
1: reach him. We're running his stuff with sort of strictly speaking without permission. We'd like to do it properly. So if, if anyone knows his whereabouts or any relatives of his whereabouts, that'd be brilliant. He goes to Strawberry Studios in Stockport to meet the band. He himself is something of a fan. The photographer Slattery isn't, and it starts off okay. The band are a bit. Wary of these journalist presence, and in those days, bands were sort of <laughs> meant to suspect journalists. I'm sure, Barney, you was an interview got well, got that from some. I've never bands. been suspected. Never anything. been suspected of being a journalist. <laughs> 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 um, Ian Curtis says, "Yeah, I'm a total pessimist. I suppose. I mean, our first single got bad. I mean, unfavorable, but I thought very well written reviews, which is <laughs> funny. Anyway, the whole interview basically starts going tits up in a hurry." McCulloch writes, Soon it is the bearded bassist who takes control of all the verbal rallies with a bludgeoning clumsy style revealing raging neurotic symptoms as he tells me everything in an inverse ironic confessions. So you're saying the lyrics are pessimistic then, are you? He bawls and slashing it myself, knowing I hadn't so much as mentioned the word pessimistic throughout the conversation. Can't help but start laughing. Oh, fuck off, the bearded one tells me. I switch the tape off and get up to leave. Sorry, do you want a drink? <laughs> It goes downhill from there. Then they stay and see the band playing live that night. And McCulloch, who had previously been a real fan of the band, by the end of the evening... Not really to it, but it. doesn't like them at all. Um, mm. it, it, it's it, a good piece, though. I, I, I like his it, writing. It, 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 it's, it's pretty. He's, he's not a good stylist as a writer, but he, he's 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 quite good at vividly reporting. Yeah, what exactly. It what kind what of it puts curve. you in the situation. Yeah,
0: he tends to get slightly overlooked in the story of kind of music journalism in yeah. that era, doesn't he? I mean, and most people you think of Joy Division at that period, and it's it's always. John Savage or Paul Morley writing about them, sometimes Chris Bond. Um, But But McCulloch actually does get to interview them. They didn't do many interviews. There aren't aren't many instances of Ian Curtis actually
1: speaking. That's right. And the other guy, of course, is Mick Middles. Mick Middles, uh, of course. Who was, uh, you know, Mr Manchester. So anyway, it's a great piece, Mm. and it's really good reading it in the light of the reverence with which Joy Division, as we talked about last week, held... Talking about last week is our guest from last week, John Savage. The next piece is from 89, The Observer, March 89. Depeche Mode. Depeche Mode were in the process of just finishing this movie by... Don Panabaker. Panabaker, mm. called 101. The concert, in, which had been filmed in question, was filmed at the Pasadena Rose Bowl the previous year in 1988. I was actually in Los Angeles when that concert took place. And I was a huge place. St- I was staggered. Mm. Mm by how hugely popular Depeche Mode... Around the same time, The Cure again played a stadium in, in Los Angeles. The Cure, for God's yeah. sake. And uh, this is quite interesting, what they say is here. Is the group feels mildly miffed that it is underappreciated in Britain. Here, a critical insistence on authenticity, in inverted commas, expressed in the vogue for roots or new country music, has kept the spotlight away from synthetic pop. In the US, there's no such problem they have been fed up authentic music for so long in the States, says Fletcher. What they want is something different. There, Depeche Mode have found a ready audience across the board and has had a considerable influence on black dance styles such as House and Garage. Remember, this is not 89. This is basically a year before grunge, and grunge was completely changed the game. In mm. 89, for a lot of young American kids, it was bands like the Depeche Mode and The Cure who were doing something different from what everything else was happening on the radio, you know. For me, Depeche Mode were a band I kind of quite liked. I, I, I liked their very early singles. They were real pioneers of electro-pop, I and mean, we mm. forget that. They went through the thing of losing basically their leader, the songwriter Vince Clark, left fairly early, and yet they managed to kind of rally their forces and keep going. But for me, they were always kind of a singles band. They were someone who turned up on top of the pop, so I, never, I don't think I ever listened to a complete Depeche Mode album. I don't know, album. I've ever listened to a Depeche Mode yeah. album, if I'm honest. But in America, it's like, it had this huge sort of impact, and the, they became sort of real Los Angeles people themselves. And one or two of them and really got heavily into drugs in LA and the rock and roll sort of. Well, life. I mean, you know,
0: I, I saw Depeche Mode at the venue in London nineteen eighty one. Yep. I mean literally it must have been their sort of second or third London gig. Yeah. And I really liked them yeah. in the early iteration, yeah, yeah. New Life and Just Can't Get Enough. There's early singles like, a lot. Just those those classic electro pop singles.
1: Fantastic. Right, and
0: yeah. and you sort of thought they'd probably come and go. Yeah. I don't think anyone predicted that they would become this sort of Barnett sure. took themselves quite seriously, this sort of very kind of sombre kind of gothic electro pop with rock star yeah. moves yeah. and heroin habits. It, it, and it, was, it was
1: quite a story. Uh, they talk in this interview, really exactly what we were talking about earlier, which is about the early pioneering Indian DIY scene, oh. because uh, da- the great, I think, the very great Daniel Miller, who, Lord's released his own record, was it the normal, warm leatherette, or yeah. something, maybe it was one before that, started Mute Records. He signed them to Mute, they could have left Mute at any time and gone to a, from much more money to a much bigger label, but they stayed with Mute, I think, for their entire career. I think especially. so, yeah. And they talk in the interview about how Daniel is always involved in all the discussions they have about mm. just about everything, that their relationship with their record label boss is incredibly close and positive. Very smart guy, Daniel yeah. Miller, I think, you know, because
0: without chasing money and, and power, he's kept... Me, as a, an ongoing and very, very yeah. viable business. I mean, no doubt, Depeche Mode. Oh, Bankroll. Been the biggest cash no. cow. Mm-hmm. And, and bankrolled all sorts of yeah.
1: other much less commercial He's music. But, but Nick Cave as well. But we've also got to remember that, that Erasure were on mute. Yeah. the, 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 the Yazoo were on mute. Yeah. The, you know, there were the Vince Clark's bands after Depeche Mode. Daniel Miller commanded a loyalty from his artists, which I think is... Surprising in any sort of area the business, really. but it was quite unusual, and I think it's partly because he was extremely honest with them that, yes. that when money came in, he paid them. There was none of this sort of like you know ducking and diving which so many even groovy label heads, yeah. To, and know. I think he
0: also kept quite a narrow aesthetic. Yes. He didn't try to sign, you know, completely no. inappropriate pop acts. Everyone who's ever been on Mute kind of belongs there. I yes, think. I th- I think it's that a kind of family yep. in a way. Yep. And even if Nick Cave wouldn't think he had anything in common with Erasure, <laughs> you know, which he wouldn't, nonetheless, I think they never sort of got too big for no. their boots, and as a result, Mute is yeah. still. It's still there, it's still in the game, still an I, important label. I think,
1: I think it's his his aesthetic. Yes. I, I think Daniel Miller, there's, he will put out a record if he likes it. Yes. That's the only reason he'll yes. put out a record. Yes, you know. Uh, uh, I, uh, well, I think absolutely. Mm. I think you can say similar things about Atlantic in the 60s with, yeah. with people like Jerry Wexler and Hurtigan, You mm. know, is that they, wanted, they didn't just shove any old thing out. It had to be something they liked, and I think that's what makes labels succeed. I think it's made what creation su- did mm. succeed yeah. until, until the lifestyles of the various participants sort of basically well, spiralled out of control. Yeah. And I think it's the story of all the best indie labels. It's, it's, it's got to be one man's real vision. And, and or make, one woman's. Or one woman's vision, indeed. Last thing is just really just a quote. Dave Grohl, Foo Fighters, talking to Stuart Bailey and Vox in uh, 97. There's all this stuff about how... Dave Grohl believes in this, c- collects that, and so on. He says, I love science fiction movies, but I don't pray to the alien god in my fucking pyramid temple. <laughs> I, just, I just like that. <laughs> so so that, that, that's pretty much that. Well, what, thanks, what have, Mark. What have you great. got?
0: Well, I think Jasper and I've got a few little things just to touch on from the last, I don't know, 20 plus years. I wanted to just mention on Passant that I saw that you had added a piece on Lenny Warren cut by yes. me, Joel Selbin, and that was nice to see. And it's particularly about these three albums that Lenny essentially produced yes. at the beginning of his Warner Brothers slash reprise career. Yep. So, so it was the first Randy Neiman album, it was the first Ry Cooder album, yep. and it was this Everly Brothers album called Roots, yes. which is really important record in terms of you know kind of Americana country rock yep. alternative country anyway it's just it's a great a great little piece Acknowledging what an incredibly tasteful, yeah. smart guy uh, Warren is.
1: I found it sad in that he, the year before he had been basically pushed out of Warner's, along with Mo Austin, who had been yeah. his old boss. You know, they were for, all
0: they were all given uh, the heave uh, uh,
1: And that that was, I think, really the time when the music industry turned sour for a lot of us in terms of you know what it meant. Yeah it was all about the bottom line, nothing to do with... In fact, what I've just been talking about in terms of the independent labels, about mm-hmm. identity and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. Uh, Lenny Waron was a, a proper good record man.
0: He know? really was. I mean, yeah. that sound, that kind of Burbank sound, yeah. I think, is still one of my favourite sounds. They, of course, went to DreamWorks. David Geffen brought Mo Austin... And Lenny and I think some other mm-hmm. people to DreamWorks and the idea was that we're going to somehow kind of replicate recreate the aesthetic and sense, but it didn't quite happen. It could have been great. I mm. mean, DreamWorks still exists as a movie studio mm. and so forth. The other, um, there's a great piece by the wonderful Jan Yehelski on the Stooges from 2007 I love the way Jan just writes sort of unapologetically about about Iggy's member um, <laughs> <laughs> it's just a, it's a, uh, and she's known Iggy for kind of you know donkeys yeah. you know, they knew each other in Detroit beginning of the Stooges story so that's, that, that, that's a terrific
1: piece she's great
0: she, she is too, wonderful yeah. we, we, we love Jan and um, there's a piece from 2013 Paul Morley bemoaning the fact that this Rolling Stones are headlining Glastonbury And finally, from my side, a piece by Simon Reynolds about... Burial's album, Untrue, which is one of my absolute favourite records. A fascinating really, piece. Yeah. Are you a fan of Burial? Um, yeah, I'm a fan of Burial. Uh, to me, he is like one of the only guys that's come out of London in the last 15 years. I would say is a genius. Just the two albums he's made and a bunch of EPs. And Simon is actually this is why it's the most important electronic music album of the Super 21st influential. century. Something like I mean, that.
3: his stuff has been, I think, if you, if you think about music. any electronic music producer, of the last kind of fifteen years, who's yeah. made something that you like? It's probably been influenced. They, they probably like Burial, even if even if you don't know it. Kind well, of thing. Well, that's good to hear. Everyone who I speak to is involved in electronic music thinks Burial's great. So
0: I'm really pleased to hear that because he's such an enigmatic and indeed sort yeah. of almost invisible yes. figure, isn't it? No one really knows who he is. I think those records are, you know, they're both they're both kind of. Very, they're spooky, but they're incredibly moving as well. Yeah. I mean, they are the Great sound record. of sort of disenfranchised urban youth yeah. in this century, aren't they? And Anyway, so over to you for some other pieces. I've got some a, a f- pieces. A few
3: pieces, first of which is a Mel C album review that I, I initially thought... Mel C of the Spice Girls, of course, Sporty Spice. Right. I thought it was a, a feature about... Her not wanting to rejoin the Spice Girls reunion, yeah. which was at the time on the cards. This is 2003, Lisa Verico writing in The Times. It turns out it's an album review of her second solo album, Reason. And then there are two more album reviews, it's sort of long set of album reviews an album review of Maloko's Statues and Clips' Lord Willin. More on that in a sec. Mm-hmm. But she's funny about Mel C's Reason. There is a hitch, however. Reason just isn't a cool album. <laughs> <laughs> it's partly that Mel's voice is so soulless that she's trying so hard to please everyone. Uh, mm. You know, she's quite complimentary about Mel C and her decision not to want to be part of the Spice Girls sure. again, but she can't really yeah. do much about the fact that she doesn't like the record.
1: Mel C was always meant to be the best singer of all of... That was
0: his, the idea. That was the
1: idea. But, as you say, exposed <sighs> by itself. I mean, I pretty fond of the Spice Girls. I thought they had a (laughs) mad sort of batty charm at the time. Sort of, you know, antidote to all kinds of ghastly muck that was happening. Though I found wrapping themselves in the Union Jack something I don't like anyone, whether it's Morrissey or Mm. You know, uh, ginger um, spice
0: <laughs> I don't think I'd ever even heard of let alone heard this second album I know that Northern Star was a pretty big record
3: yeah, for big.
0: Melanie C wasn't it the Lisa talks
3: about b- that as well it says it's also rubbish but
0: <laughs> 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 rubbish but successful rubbish yes. I think Reason probably just did not sell anywhere near as, Possibly as, as, as many copies
3: but the other thing that I want to point out in this article is actually our first piece about Clips who are a rap duo consisting of Malice and Pusher T, and it's produced by the Neptunes. Right. It's a pretty great record, actually. I listened to it again yesterday, uh-huh. uh, Lord Willin. Lisa Varico says that it's, if, you know, if you don't mind the Neanderthal attitude to women that they have, <laughs> uh, Lord <laughs> Willin is a classic, which is, you know, pretty much accurate. It's, yeah. it, is a, it is a rap album from the early 2000s, and it sounds like that, and they're not particularly... But what's funny is that Malice... Right around the time when they were supposed, Clips were supposed to be getting back together for a 10th anniversary tour mm-hmm. of this album, Malice became a born-again Christian and changed his name to No Malice. Which <laughs> 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 <So> I think <laughs> is hilarious. But he's, subsequently, he's, had, he's had pretty big beef with, with Pusha T. Hilarious. Bit, it's, it's very funny. That's it's great, it very a very Christian
0: funny. beef. Uh, <laughs> just a beef. I mean, can you really have a beef as a, as a born-again Christian? Oh, yeah. Surely you should be oh, no,
1: getting over your beef. No, I'd say... No? Well, I mean, evidence points to the exact opposite You can have a beef there, with the
0: devil, obviously. No. But I mean, can you have a beef with a former member <laughs> well, of Well, because
1: the former member is the devil, and he's got the devil in him, you know. See where going, you're coming from. Hey, yeah, 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 yeah. Next up, Twist and Pout, Cheryl
3: Cole's new album cover. This is a piece by Laura Barton in The Guardian in 2009. This is a really intelligent piece, actually. Sort of like pseudo-art historical kind of examination of... (laughs) I'm going to get some flack for that. But pseudo historical kind of examination of the, the looking over the shoulder pose. And she goes through and lists a bunch of... Because this is an album cover where Cheryl Cole is looking, you know, photographed in black and white by Knight. Nick, it's
0: Nick Knight. Nick yeah. Knight. The famous
1: Vogue photographer. and she's I got photographed by him once.
3: Well done, you. With your, with, with your shoulder you pose. No, no, very with your bare shoulder. Laura Barton lists a bunch of examples of... Previous album covers that feature this, and then manages to bring it round to the to the portrait of the Queen that features on on this nation's stamps. All started which, with Her which, Majesty. Which is also an over the shoulder pose, although it's less come hither and. Is exciting. it? Well, sort of, yeah. It's a sort the of. It's a three
1: quar- quarter portrait. I thought it was a straight profile. Mind you, I haven't looked at a stamp for about a million years. Well, you can, you you can a, take it up with Laura Barton. I haven't sent a letter for about. <laughs> <laughs> but it's,
3: I, and it's an interesting I, piece, and it's and it's it's very well put no, together, and it's a nice little examination she's of a the kind re- that you do really get good, that
1: often. She's a really good writer, as Laura. I think she's terrific. Well, see, uh, one of the things I really like about her is that she's... I'm certainly in her, her, her Hail, Hail, Hail rock and roll column in The Guardian, is she writes about the experience of listening to music. Not the music... It, itself, or the musicians, certainly not about the musicians, but about the experience of listening to music, which is a really good way of talking about music. Definitely. Not enough people do, I think. Anyway, she's she's, she's a a good one.
3: And then finally, a live review of Lauren Hill uh, in 2014, so this is quite a long time after she did anything really noteworthy. Ian Gittins goes to see her and isn't actually overall that impressed. She apparently had a sizable live band and was reimagining a bunch of Classic Tunes, Fugees, and all her solo stuff. And he just didn't think that they pulled it off that well. He says, Having growled, I only have eyes for you, at a volume that would elicit admiring nods from Shirley Bassey, Hill plays the doe-eyed ingenue on Shur's Bang Bang My Baby Shot Me Down, subverting its cooing submissiveness by whipping off her cap to reveal a shaven head, then closes by strafing her melodious biggest hit Do Wop That Thing with eardrum-shredding bass. The big attitude that Lauren Hill exhibits all night can't obliterate the impression that she
1: remains an object lesson in wasted potential. Right. I mean, it, it is really... She is really interesting. I mean, she was a massive star in a hurry. First of all, the Fugees, then with her first solo album, which I still think is a pretty wonderful record. Miss yeah, education. Miss yeah. Educationism. Mm. Brilliant, brilliant record. And then, for whatever reason, she lost all kinds of plots. She's... Wouldn't turn up at shows. She she basically sort of dropped out for a great chunk of time. I was meant to be seeing her at a free concert in Grant Park in Chicago in 2005, and she just never turned up. And um, they had to draft an LL Cool J at the last minute to sort of fill the top spot. I
0: and mean, she became a bit of a car crash. Didn't yeah, absolutely. She really? I mean, just I think she had some mental health. Yep. issues. And I've not read a kind of good word about her for a long time yeah, now. It's mean, such a shame. saw her at Madison Square Gardens, probably late 90s, yep. m- when Miss Education had just come out. And it was just a fabulous show. Yeah. You know, and I love the Fugees. And I do think it's really sad I think it's that she certain. hasn't kind of, you know, I mean, she just, just hasn't, as, hasn't as a- hasn't say, wasted potential. You know, she should be one of the biggest stars
1: on Earth. My question has always been, is this a classic case of strong weed psychosis? Actually, because I think t- she was partial to all of that. And Hanging out with
0: Marley's will uh, do that for you.
1: Well, uh, you know, it's it's just possible that she didn't. That she may have been fragile m- mm. m- mentally in the first place, and may have been tipped over the she edge. She didn't seem
0: nuts when she was no, in the fugue. No, but but, mess-
1: but you know, American weed is so strong these days. Mm. You know, it's really something else, and th- yep. th- that I just wondered... It them. has occurred to me, yeah. and probably others. Very sad, very sad.
0: She's she's playing yeah, here she's, this summer. She is, yeah. Um, well, see seems she turns up. Ms. Lauren Hill, as she's now billed. Right. Well, yeah, well, I mean, She's ha, not you know, Lauren Hill.
3: Right, okay. Hopefully she does manage to make some... I mean, I think she was, has been doing more live gigs mm. in the last couple of years. Yeah. And, you know, hopefully that's a sign that she will go on to do some more stuff. Because, mm. I mean, the miseducation of Lauren Hill is...
1: It's One a long th- time ago now. It's right? a long
0: time ago,
3: but it was, was it tw- bloody tw- great. 20
1: plus years? 20
0: plus years.
1: Okay, well, that's very sad. (laughs) Sorry.
0: (laughs) Can we quickly talk about (laughs) something (laughs) something light and frivolous? Fluffy. Um,
1: Let's find something something fluffy to talk about. Uh, fluffy.
0: Well, next week, we'll try and reinstate some of the fluffiness. There's a pretty good chance that next week's podcast will be Mark and Jasper sans moi. You guys may well be talking about the Reverend Al Green next week. Will we? So I'm sorry to miss that being a massive Al Green fan, but I know you... You both are too. He's about to start his first tour in a long while. And, I, I, um,
1: I saw him a few years back at Albert yeah. Hall, and he was save it for fantastic. next week. We can just
0: record it now.
1: <laughs> can't, just can't, roll. Can't, so, can't, roll like, can't I just spunk it now. <laughs>
0: tune in on that note. Tune in next week for conversation yeah. about the Al Green and other new things on Rock's Back Pages. Oh. We will see you soon.
1: And um, we're going to play out with a clip from Todd Rundgren where he talks about originality and plagiarism. Thanks Take for listening. Take it away, Todd. Bye.
2: I realised at some point how easy it was to plagiarise and uh, how often one plagiarizes. It's very hard to claim to be original. Musicians are so heavily influenced by other, other musicians, who in turn were influenced by other musicians, that it's got to be one of the most um, miscegenated art forms <laughs> mm-hmm. in existence. And it's because we work from such a narrow palette. Tonally, there's only certain things that that a contemporary audience is willing to listen to and only certain kinds of subject matter tend to be the topic of just about every popular song that gets written. So originality is extremely difficult if, if it's possible at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I had that realization when, uh, probably when M.C. Hammer had um, his big hit Can't Touch This, Yeah. which he took somebody else's song and just like, modified it slightly, and had a bigger hit than the original. So.
3: That was Todd Rundgren in conversation with Bill Demain in 1997, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. For a list of articles discussed and full show notes, please visit rocksbackpages.com forward slash podcast. You can find thousands of articles as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com.